0: The Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. My name is Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area, and today with me, is always...
1: I'm Chen Bui, a writer for Slash Film on the Tracking Board, and a pop culture journalist in D.C.
2: And I am Anya Frinton, Associate Editor at the Tracking Board.
1: So today's episode
2: is our monthly millennial movie review, and for this month's movie, we are going to be reviewing Free Fire which just came out uh, at the end of the month. So, a quick synopsis of Free Fire, it's set in Boston, 1978. And it focuses on two gangs uh, doing an arms deal in a deserted warehouse. And things quickly go south, and it turns into a wild shootout and a game of survival. Free Fire was directed by Ben Wheatley, and the screenplay was co-written by Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump. And it stars the likes of Charles O'Copley, Brie Larson, Army Hammer, uh, Killian Murphy, Sam, Re- Sam Riley, and a handful of other people. So that's the movie we're talking about this month. What do you guys think of it?
1: I, I liked it. I kind of went in not really expecting much. I just really expected it to be an extended version of a Quentin Tarantino like shootout scene in which uh, something sparks a somewhat mild scene and turns it into a really bloody, gory uh, Macabre scene of death, and and um, that kind of what, what it was. But at the same time, it was a little bit less um, cartoonish than I would expect a Tarantino scene to be. It was a lot more on the nihilistic side, and kind of um, I don't know how how. I, I would differentiate it, but it's not exactly the same as I expected it to be. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the actors in it. Brie Larson was great. Charlto stole the show. He, is, he did. He's
2: hilarious. He's hilarious.
1: He's a great character actor. Um, they really did well with the 70s setting, even though it didn't really have much to do. Like, it didn't really, they didn't really need to do it, but it was. It added a fun part of to the film. And uh, I thought the twist, I... The twist, when I watched it, I didn't really get it immediately, but I saw it with my friend Mike, who had seen it before, and he kind of explained it to me. I was like, okay, that actually made it somewhat more clever than I initially anticipated. So, yeah, I, I liked it. It was a fun movie. It was, it was a fun, nihilistic set piece, and so I liked it for what it was.
0: Is there a twist?
1: Well, uh, we'll we we'll go into that a little bit later. Uh, when we go into the plot, um, so spoilers, warning for spoilers, guys. Yeah, there's a little there's a little reveal at the end that's not completely clear. It's pertaining to Brie Larson's character.
2: I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right, Willoughby, what did you think?
0: Um, I thought it was a little bit underwhelming, to be honest. Uh, I really expected more from it. I don't know if I just had different expectations than people, but, I mean, I heard a lot of really good things about it, so I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those, like, fresh, innovative movies that's, like, indie, but it's also, like, good action. Um, kind of like in the, ter- in the same things as, like, John Wick, because, like, a lot of people were praising it for the action and the gun action that was going on. So, I don't know, maybe I just had mixed expectations, but uh, I came out of that movie thinking that it, really should have been 30 minutes long and like a bit of like a short film. Cause I think it could have actually worked very well if it was like a short film, but not a full length feature 90 minute to almost two hours. Like I thought I liked the characters, the actors did a good job of portraying them. They'd had a good, like they were, you know, um, Anya had said prior to this episode that they were all like defined right away. And I agree with that. Um, But I also thought they were a little bit thin. And I thought that over the course of the movie... I mean, we can get into this as to whether or not it's supposed to, but the characters didn't grow. There was no arc to any of them. Um, And my favorite character had to be Army Hammer. I liked him. He was fun. Uh, With a second by uh, Charlotte Copley or uh, And Brie Larson after that. Um... I just, I mean, and then the action de- never seemed as innovative or fresh as I thought it was going to be. And I don't know. I just kind of left disappointed. But that, I mean, that, it's, that's my thoughts. I don't, maybe I, maybe I just had a different movie in my own head. Own your over.
2: thoughts, Willoughby. You don't need to. Yeah, you don't have to apologize know. for them. Own, yeah, own your well, thoughts.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not, apologizing. I'm just <laughs> saying that I thought the movie was going to be different than what it is. Well, there you go.
2: Um, I really liked it. I thought it was great. I think it's one of the cleverest scripts I've seen in a film in a really long time. Um, I disagree with Willoughby on quite a few things in the film, in terms of expectations and what it was doing and what it was trying to do. I think, the more I think about it, I saw it last week, so I've had some time to sit with it, and the more I think about it, the more I sit with it, the more I like it, and the more it impresses me. Um... I did have to, like, readjust when I was seeing it, because it was slower than I anticipated, but once I, like, kind of realigned myself with the film, I was able to get really into it. Um, and I was, like, the film uses very little score, and I wasn't expecting that, but once I kind of, like, realized that's the tone they were going for, I was kind of completely on board. Also, no score meant you could hear the amazing sound editing in this film. Mm-hmm. Its sound editing was, like... Off the charts. It was incredible.
0: I'll give it that. I'll definitely Um, give
2: it that. So I really like Free Fire, um, and I just can't stop thinking about what a clever script it is.
1: Yeah, I think the reason that Willoughby was so disappointed was because it was almost the complete opposite of a stylish action uh, crime caper like uh, John Wick or like an Edgar Wright movie. It was actually. It was very bare bones, kind of scrappy almost. And it was, you know, it was set in one in one setting in this really worn down factory that uh, spoilers manufactured umbrellas, which is kind of this really fun winking um, uh, joke. I mean, like a lot of it was based in comedy and kind of this really dark black humor that kind of pervaded throughout the film, and I really enjoyed that because it was. It knew that it was a ridiculous premise, um, and it kind of just leaned into it. Not in so much in like style or anything, but in the fact that it knew it wasn't something that was completely um, uh, complex. It was just, you know, this is a shootout. These people are kind of incompetent, and... They don't really know what they're doing, so they're really not doing it with any flair or with any smarts. They're just shooting at each other because, you know, one guy accidentally nicked some guy in the back or something. So it's honestly like humanity at its most petty, which I found really amusing. And I think it kept me engaged for a long, like the majority of the film. I did, I will say that it was slow at some points, and I actually. I left in the middle of the film because I needed to go to the bathroom, and I went in and I was able to pick it up pretty quickly, so it wasn't anything that, like, you know, like, a lot of the shots, like, weren't completely necessary, it wasn't, like, you know, um, a movie that if you missed a little bit of it, you'd have missed a large amount of the plot, it was fairly plotless, but I think that, like, for the reactions and the characters and the dialogue, it was really strong.
2: Yeah, I actually think it's more complex than people are giving it credit for okay. because I think it's so simple on the surface. Mm. It's such a simple premise. It's like its complexity is disguised by its simplicity.
1: Mm. Okay.
2: Um. So yeah, I actually think there's a lot more going on than people give the film credit for. But also, if even if there isn't, does that matter? No. Like people keep saying like, nothing really happened and they didn't really get anything out of it, but it's like, did you need to? This film is a, it's a nihilistic film. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to really get anything out of it. It's all nihilism.
1: Yeah, and I like that it didn't try to put any meaning to that nihilism. Like, we have a lot of nihilistic, I say in air quotes, um, products today and like films and television today that really try to uh, project some sort of meaning onto uh, the stories that they're telling. And it, falls flat. Like, I'm thinking about mostly like, The Walking Dead, um, some aspects of Game of Thrones, and honestly, like, you don't need to add that sort of depth because nihilism, you know, in by definition, is just, it doesn't, um, it doesn't deathless. matter. Deathless. Yeah, depthless. Deathless, exactly.
2: Um, although I think, you know, like, I don't think you have to read it into any themes in this film. I don't think mm-hmm. it has to have themes, but I think if it were to have anything... I think there's an interesting idea in that, like, when it's a room full of criminals, does anyone have the moral high ground? Mm, Can you claim a moral high ground if you're a criminal in a room full of criminals?
1: So why don't we dive deep into this film? Um, We're going to be dividing our review, uh, as we usually do for a millennial movie review, by plot, plot, Characters and themes. So let's go into plot first because it's going to be fairly short. Um, (laughs) The plot was pretty simple. Um, As Anya described it, it was just uh, these criminals meeting to uh, exchange guns for money. And the deal goes horribly wrong after um, one personal beef between two of the um, members of on the other side, on each other side of the, uh, teams, I guess you would say, uh, start a fight and it turns into a big shootout. So, Anya, I know you've talked about this on Twitter. Um, you said you had, there was like a problem with the reason that the Not a shootout goes out.
2: Mm-hmm. Not a problem. I just think something that shouldn't be ignored.
1: Why don't we talk about that then?
2: Yeah. So the beef is because you find out that Stevo, is on the side, um, of the people buying the guns, you find out that he bottled the cousin of a member of the other side. And Mm -hmm. the previous night, uh, it had turned into a fight after like he bottled the cousin and Stevo got beat up pretty badly. And so when he goes to the meeting and he sees that the guy is there, the guy who beat him up is there, it turns it it turns the deal goes south because of a personal issue, which I find Mm -hmm. interesting. It wasn't like a discrepancy over because you think it's going to be because they brought the wrong guns. Right. You think that's that's also, the, again, one of the clever parts. You think it's going to be because they brought the wrong guns, mm-hmm. Charlotte Copley's character. And Killian yes. Murphy keeps going on him for that. He keeps mm-hmm. saying, like, we wanted, like, these guns. You brought these guns. Mm-hmm. And so you think it's going to be that. That's how it's going to all go south. And then you find out there's this personal beef between Steve and Harry in that Steve bottled Harry's cousin. Mm-hmm. And... So my thing is, I think you have to consider the fact that they made the conscious choice, conscious choice, to make the personal beef be sexual assault.
1: I think that I, I thought that was what you are going to go for. Really mm-hmm. ignore that. Mm-hmm.
2: What I like about the film is that they don't ignore that. Like right. the gravity of what Steve did is present. Steve is continually punished throughout the film. He probably has the most gruesome death out of mm-hmm. anyone in the group. And no one in that room likes what Steve did. Even the people on his own side condemn him for what he did. So, like, I think it's interesting that they went with sexual assault. And I have to wonder kind of, like, why out of any personal beef you could have chosen why that was chosen. But they never, they didn't, like, brush it aside. They, like, Mm -hmm. gave it due attention.
0: I mean, it literally became the catalyst for everything.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that's, like, you have to you you place sexual assault at the front and center of your catalyst and like mm-hmm. that's a conscious choice that the writers made and you kind of have to wonder like why I think why that
1: I think that's interesting because there's sort of like this through line throughout the film of the other characters treatment of Justine Brie Larson's character who is the only female character in this whole movie and um who appears on screen and um she is treated with a lot more respect than everyone else. Like, there are equal turns both hitting on her and flirting with her as well as trying to protect her. Um, um, And that kind of also becomes part of the twist later on when she is, spoilers, uh, revealed to be the one who hired the other hitman alongside... Well, she was with Martin. Yeah, she was with Martin. She and Martin had hired the hitman who had uh, intervened halfway through the shootout. And they were apparently going to... Take the money and the guns. I think.
2: Yeah, and that's the whole yeah. thing is that you find out that she was working with Martin.
1: Yeah, she was working with Martin, and that that's why she was so upset when he was shot and dying because he was her partner essentially.
0: Yeah, I missed that completely.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I got I got who hired the outside dudes. So mm. That was pretty yeah, cut and clear. But I when when did they?
2: There's a hint
1: at it? at it at the beginning. Yeah. And then she reveals it at the end. And also, when you see Martin um, about to... Not Martin, no, One of the hitmen about to reveal who hired him, uh, he gets shot. And you assume right. it's uh, an accidental shot from someone else, but it was actually um, Justine Brie Larson's yeah. character who shot him to, before he could reveal it. Yeah. So, so I, yeah. Yeah. I th- I think that was, like, really interesting. It sort of plays into your um, point about sexual assault being the catalyst for all of this and, like, respect for women, because despite this being a very nihilistic, very masculine and testosterone-driven movie, there is that through line of respect for women and, like, the one female character being underestimated and protected the entire time when she, in fact, was the perpetrator of a lot of this violence, essentially. Also,
2: the scene where she first passes out and mm-hmm. she's like, "Oh, men!" And then she just <laughs> passes out. It's so great. It's great. It's just like men are dumb and women are great.
1: So, do we think it's this true. movie, in its sort of, um, in its depiction of Justine, um, is like secretly a little bit feminist? I think this goes to show that like there should be, I mean, there
2: there should always be more women in mm-hmm. uh, media. But I think this, you know, it's like that idea of, like, can a film be feminist if it doesn't pass the Bechdel test? Yeah. And, like, of course it can, because the Bechdel test is, on purpose, a low bar. Mm-hmm. And I think Justine's character, um, and kind of the plot with Steve and how it's treated, uh, kind of goes to show that it can be, you know, not terrible to women. Mm-hmm. Just because it's a period piece or just because there's one female character. Not that there should have been I mean, I would have loved to have had more female characters in the film. Yeah. Um but I think I think the treatment of Justine was really good.
1: Yeah, you know um, what this movie somewhat reminded me of in terms of like nihilistic violent shootout movies, Seven Psychopaths.
2: Yes, um, which is so which...
1: great had a much more problematic treatment of women and yes. like at the same time it pointed it out but it didn't try to remedy it so yeah. there was a funny there's a good line in seven psych paths where they where sam rockwell's character says the only women people you can sh- um you can kill you can't kill on screen are dogs and children and they're like he's like you can kill women all the time like naked women especially." And I thought, like, that was a really interesting point in Seven Psychopaths, but they don't really live up to it because, like, they kill so many women in Seven Psychopaths and, like, they kind of just brush them off. Whereas I think that, like, I feel like this might be giving a little bit too much credit to Free Fire, but I feel like it kind of lives up to um, that notion of underestimating women and seeing them as sort of uh, replaceable when, in fact, like, the women are quite important to the plot of this film.
2: Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, Brie Larson's the one who, she doesn't get away because mm-hmm. the cops come at the very end. But like, she's the last one left standing, the last mm-hmm. one left alive. Um, she's the one who kills Chris and Ord at the very end, and she's like Army
0: Hammer right through the head. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's it's great. And I also I also like that Justine that, but also that just because she's a woman, she doesn't have a moral high ground on the men. Mm-hmm. Like she's just as bad as the men. Mm-hmm. She's just as much of a criminal.
1: So, is there anything else we want to add about the plot to this film? All right, let's move on to the characters. Um, so, who were your guys' favorite characters in this movie, and why do you think that they shined?
0: I liked Army Hammer probably mm-hmm. the most. Um, I think that he, he he always does a great job. Like in movies, I wish he had better better movies. Uh, in terms of like financially uh none of the movies he's made besides social network have ever like been a hit crit- uh financially mm-hmm. and most kind of critically like uh lone ranger was terrible um didn't make any money uh man from uncle got mixed reviews didn't make any money but he was great in it
2: he was so great he was great in it, it. that's uncle. the thing he's
0: he's always great in the movies he's in the movies are always just He doesn't have a a solid track record of, like, being in hits. Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought he did a great job, like, with the performance that he was doing, like, kind of, also, like, he kind of embodies, like, the nihilism that's going on. Mm -hmm. He just kind of doesn't care about anything as long as there's money involved. Like, he's okay.
1: Yeah, he's the one Um, who's, like, smoking for a lot of the movie.
0: Yeah, like, he's smoking. He's, like, like, he, like, knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, he's probably the most put-together character of like in terms of like mental stability and <laughs> of all these guys and just like he's like, he's like trying to make broker a deal and he brokers a deal with like Jack Rainer's character later and like he's you know he tries he's be, he's playing to win um and so yeah i think he's my favorite character and then probably Ree Larson's character after that
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah i really liked a lot of the characters to be honest i actually really liked Killian Murphy i thought Chris was really great cuz i thought Chris was the most sincere like, mm-hmm. if it's all nihilistic and they're all criminals, Chris, to me, felt the most sincere out of all the characters, um, just in terms of, like, what he was trying to do and just how he acted. Um, yeah, Willie mentioned this, but I what I really love about this movie is that how, like, with how quickly everything goes to hell, mm-hmm. they made the smart decision to set up the characters really quickly and really solidly. So, like, you know where everyone stands at the beginning. Like, you know Steve's relationship with both Chris and Frank. And, like, you know that, like, Steve is Frank's brother-in-law and, like, the way he treats Frank's sister. And, like, that's why Frank doesn't really like him. And, like, you know all their dynamics, like, from the mm-hmm. get-go. Yeah. Um, and, like, the script also does it. Well, the script is the whole thing. But, like, there's that line about Charlotte Copley's character when he walks in where they're like, he's a misdiagnosed child genius. And you're like, I love that, that line. is all you need to know. <laughs> About his character, like that is all you need to know about Vernon is that he was a mi- misdiagnosed child genius, and that's what informs everything he does in this film. And he's probably mm-hmm. also like the most blatantly like dumbest of all the characters. Yeah, like when he puts the all, cardboard. We've all met.
0: We've all met misdiagnosed child geniuses. <laughs> and, and I'm being like, sincere when, he puts when I say the that.
2: Cardboard on himself to like not get infected from his gunshot wounds.
0: From yeah, from the from the bacteria mm. outside. Yeah, well. and
2: it's so great. So like, I just I like that. Like every character, like you know where they stood, and they each had like a personality quirk, like from the get go. And I mm. really appreciate yeah, like that. Killian
0: Murphy's mustache.
2: <laughs> that was his quirk. His mustache. I couldn't get
0: over. I couldn't get past it. I was like, either shave it or grow it in more. That looks terrible. <laughs> um.
2: So yeah. So I. I really liked all the characters and I thought the actors were, I thought they were all funny. Shots like, of Copley stood out the most because again, and I think his character was written as like the dumbest with like the most blatant jokes. Mm-hmm. So like you could he, laugh at him the most, but like, yeah. I thought the rest of them, there's a moment when Steve is behind like a, like a, he's behind something and he's talking to Frank and he keeps hitting his head while he's talking to Frank. Cause he just took like a shot. He just took like a joint because uh-huh. Steve's a junkie and like he just keeps hitting his head while he's talking to Frank and it's hysterical. <laughs> the physical humor in this is really funny.
1: It is good it a lot of the movie is really dependent on the performances of the actors who pull it off phenomenally. Um, I don't think yeah, I don't think there was a character like a performance I disliked, but um I loved especially Charlotte Copley like we said he is a great character actor and I think like this was the embodiment of how when it when he is cast well he can really pull off like a scene-stealing just like unhinged uh, wild card character and I like that he does it so well and just doesn't really care for um, dignity or anything he kind of just goes for it um, I liked him and I did actually like Killing Murphy a lot um, he was a good sort of stable um, center to the film. He
2: was like the straight man almost.
1: Yeah, he was the straight man. Um, the Who was the other character with Jack? Um, they kind of had a uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of dynamic going on. Oh, you
2: mean Harry and, uh, I think, Gordon. No, wait, was Gordon with Steve-O? Steve-O no, it was Steve-O and Bernie. steve and, and Bernie, Harry, that's what it was. I'm sorry. Right, Harry and Gordon.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had sort of a lot of their own different dynamics within the teams, which I thought was good. And I do agree; I think that the dynamics were um, well established. And I think like this was one of the examples of establishing like a huge cast of characters early on really well. A good a, another example I can think of um, most recently is Suicide Squad, which did not do it as well. <laughs> Will be just rolled his eyes and. These are, like, <laughs> the two best
2: head. examples of, like, Suicide Squad is what you don't do and Free Fire exactly. is what you do do because, like, exactly. in Suicide Squad they, like, they took you out of the film to introduce the characters where in Free Fire it was ingrained into the script and into the plot. Like, you got to know them as the plot progressed. mm mm-hmm.
0: I would also throw in Magnificent Seven as a, as a way of That's doing a really it good. well. Yeah. Um, I remember coming out of that movie saying that was a better Suicide Squad than Suicide Squad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember that. This is also
0: kind of a Suicide Squad, because they all die.
1: Yeah, it's similar in, in tone to Suicide Squad, but done a little bit better. Um, Much better. Yeah, do you... I'd
0: agree, I would agree, I agree that Suicide Squad is not as good as Free Fire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I forgive it that.
2: I can't so... believe we're even like, that's even a thing. Of course Free Fire is better than... <laughs> of course, <laughs>
0: of course, why. no. I'm just saying. It, if we're comparing them, obviously Free is the better <laughs>
1: movie. So do you, do you find that the characters ever... Like worked for most of the time. Um, Willoughby, I know you said at the beginning of this episode that you felt that they were a little flat. Like I do agree, they kind of came off as mostly archetypal for a lot of the time and didn't really develop beyond that. But I also felt like that wasn't in- entirely the point of the movie either. But can you go into your point, please?
0: I mean, it's sort of. I it's basically that. It's it's that's a pretty flat argument. Mm-hmm. Is that I just didn't think that there was any growth, and maybe it maybe maybe I was expecting. There to be character arc, you know, like, with it within, like, like the little stories going on throughout the movie, mm-hmm. but, you know, as time went on, as more characters just started dying and not, nothing was really happening, I don't know, maybe nihilism just ropes me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of prefer arcs and development in terms of plot and character, even in themes. So maybe maybe this movie just didn't fundamentally, on, like, a personal level, didn't work for me, because... Like and I and I, I can't get that past, like the rest of it because I don't know I'm, I'm I'm one for for non nihilism.
2: <laughs> and I think that's the thing. I think if this movie were to have were to give its characters arcs, it would have been a different film. And um, so I think that's the thing. You can't say that like it failed and that it didn't give its characters arcs because that wasn't the point. They weren't supposed to have arcs. They were supposed to be archetypal flat characters. And so, and if you were to change that, you would be watching a different film. And so I think that's the thing, is that, like, at one point with a film, does it come down to personal taste versus the script itself has objective problems? And I would argue that Free Fire is a personal taste thing, as opposed to, like, its script failing its characters. I think that's a good point, Anya. Yeah, I also Um, want to give a shout out to Sam Riley, who plays Steve. Like, Steve's gross, but Sam Riley is great, and I've loved him for a long time. Not a long time. I loved him since Maleficent. He was a big standout in Maleficent for me. He played D of All, and then I saw him in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, where he played Darcy, and I also love him in that. And so I'm just excited to see Sam Riley get in work, because I think he's
1: really fun. I was very confused when you were talking about Sam Riley, because I was like, who is that? Because he was one Honestly, of the actors I had no idea who he was. Last
0: week, we were like, we were talking about Free Fire, and you were talking about how much you love Sam Riley, and I just go, who's Sam Riley? <laughs>
1: so the
2: thing is, Pride, <laughs> and, Prejudice and, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is the unofficial movie of our household, and basically, if you come to our house and you've never seen that movie, to be like welcomed into our house and initiated, you have to watch Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Of course. And Sam Riley plays Darcy in that. Um,
1: but yeah, so... That's who mm-hmm. he is. <laughs> He's a very Anya actor, I think. He is. That is accurate. <laughs> All right. Um, is there anything else you want to add about characters? All right. Okay. Let us move on to theme. I feel like we've touched a lot about the theme uh, of this movie. Uh, we Nothing talked about matters. It. <laughs> Nothing matters. And we talked a little bit about the sort of um, the red herrings and the the through line of with Justine and everything. Um, but, yeah. Anything you guys want to say about theme, Anya? Um, I
2: mean, I touched on that out of,
1: like, the moral high ground
2: type thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, can it can this character be like, you wronged me, and therefore, like, I'm in the right. But, like, if you are also a criminal, and you are also shooting a gun, like, do you have that ground? Do you have a right to say that? Um, And I think that's kind of one of the few things that it explored. But, again... I don't think this movie needs to explore Mm -hmm. anything. I think what's bothering me somewhat about people's response to this film is that Mm. everyone keeps talking about how, like, sometimes it's okay to just have an entertaining film. And, like, sometimes we just want to, like, enjoy a film and it doesn't have to say this or do this. And I'm like, here is a perfect example of a film that doesn't do anything, doesn't comment on anything, unless you kind of, like, really read between the lines, which you can, and Mm. it's entertaining, and yet it wasn't enough for you. And I'm I'm confused with people being like, This film didn't do enough, but also I just want an entertaining film. And I'm like, what do you want? <laughs> like and like why does this film have to do what other films do? I've become to. very defensive of Free Fire.
1: So I am on the the camp I'm in the camp of I enjoyed it for what it was, which was just like a nihilistic set piece. Um in which these archetypal characters played off of each other and killed each other, and just kind of were so anti-philosophy and anti-depth that it it became not a, it became just like it was just an enjoyable thing to watch for me. Um, I do think that, like, through this discussion, it has a little bit more complexity than I initially anticipated, which I like, especially, like, with Justine's character and with, like, the kind of... I'm going to say with the secret feminism of Free Fire. Um, and... Can that
0: be the next hot take? Like, <laughs> the secret uh, feminism H.T., can Fire. you pitch that to Peter Soretta and be like, <laughs> I have an article for you. You're going to love it. it the, the title is The Secret Feminism of Free Fire. And he'll be like, here's a raise. <laughs>
1: Oh, it's probably too late now because Free Fire's been out for, I think, like two weeks. You have like to give weeks. credit to Anya, though. Of course. Of hey, course. well, I kind of coin- coined it, so. You did. No, you didn't. I coined it. You have to give credit to the there, Millennial Falcon. There... After, af- mm-hmm. Out
2: of the discussion from the Millennial Falcon. Mm-hmm. Of,
0: of all the branches. Oh, yeah, you got to plug the podcast.
2: Of course.
1: Um,
0: of all the branches of feminism, is there a nihilist version?
1: I feel like there should be. If not, if not then, like, maybe Free Fire is the first in it. Because I'm thinking about, in terms of like nihilist films that have come out, I do think that Free Fire is the one that I've enjoyed the most and that really got to the heart of the matter of like nihilism and its philosophy and almost being anti-philosophy, as Anya was saying, the best. Actually, I wanted to say, while you were talking, Anya, I thought it was interesting that the reason you enjoyed this film was because it was almost philosophical in its anti-philosophiness. This movie is so much smarter
2: than you think it is. And I think that's what I like about it, is that as such a narrative person, I Mm -hmm. kind of wonder if I hadn't gleaned all this from I have, that I have over the, like, past week, would I be as defensive of it and enjoy it as much as I did? I think Mm. it's the fact that I saw so much more in it is why I enjoyed it so much.
1: Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
0: I I think... I think really when I think about it, what it comes down to is the filmmaking, like the actual like filmmaking, not mm-hmm. not the plot or the, or the themes or the characters, but the editing, and the besides the sound editing, I will give the sound ex- editing and mixing like a plus on both sides. Mm-hmm. But I I just think that the pa- like I didn't like the pacing. I thought it dragged a little bit too many times, and that's why I kept saying you know it wor- it, it would work really well. I think in my opinion, as, as a short, shorter film, like 30, 30 minutes. Uh, and, I, and, I, and this goes back to when I saw the trailer and I was wondering how it was going to sustain itself. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I think I made that comment either on the podcast or at least to you guys, mm-hmm. that I was just, I'm just wondering how it could, could sustain itself and felt like filmmaking like keeping me I- engaged. And I think it kept me engaged the least amount. Of of the of the three of us, I think. think...
2: Oh,
0: go ahead. I know. I was just. I like. I don't know. I thought. I. I. I expected. I think I just expected more innovative, like action, and it's it
2: didn't. I have a a question about that because this actually gets back to last year's Oscars for me, in that I remember everyone talking about the filmmaking of The Revenant, and. I would juxtapose that with, like, Spotlight and Brooklyn. Which, neither of which did anything interesting with its filmmaking. Spotlight and Brooklyn weren't innovative with its filmmaking. But its filmmaking was solid. Mm -hmm. At what point do we stop giving kudos to someone just being really good and solid versus they have to be innovative? Like, why does The Revenant get praise for being innovative versus, like, someone who just knows how to really shoot a movie and is like except is exceptional in their not innovativeness
1: I think that's a really good point Anya and I remember last year I was making that complaint and you turned me on to team spotlight because of that argument and I agree with you I think that like we should commend filmmakers for doing well in terms of just like good traditional filmmaking I mean, we did a whole episode last, ye- last week about classic Hollywood and how you know it wasn't completely innovative or anything in, in sort of like its techniques. It was actually quite bare bones, but they did it so well that those films still stand up today. And I do think that like while experimentation and innovative filming techniques do deserve praise in some parts, Agreed. I do sometimes feel like maybe, sometimes we give it too much credit in some cases, so much so that we overlook other glaring errors in their um, scripts or their plot or other, like... Yeah. Or characters. I
2: mean, as a society, we would have stagnated a long time ago if we hadn't pushed technology more and more. And so, of course, we should keep doing that. We should always push technology, and Mm -hmm. we should try new innovative film techniques. Like, I'm not saying that The Revenant had bad cinematography, and I appreciated its innovativeness even if, as a film, it's not great. But why does that have to make it inherently better than mm-hmm. something like Spotlight's filmmaking? I guess is my question. Is like, isn't there room enough in this world for both?
1: Very good And point.
0: I think there is, but mm-hmm. I don't... I'm, And I'm, I'm on your side when it comes to Revenant versus Spotlight, but I just wasn't impressed by the movie.
1: I do want to... I do agree with Willoughby, actually, in some parts, especially of the... With the pacing of this film,
2: yeah, I no, do agree think, with
1: you yeah, I do yeah. think that it could have been improved, especially in terms of when the hitmen were introduced and the sort of escalation of the violence. So I feel like at some points there were like there are good moments in which the violence escalated a little bit, like the part with the with the rolling thing. I forgot what it was called. What it's called, but like in the factory, there's like this giant rolling sort of pinwheel looking thing that. Um, a character was behind. Was it Killian Murphy's character? Um, but he was like running behind it as he was getting shot out from the other side. Yes. And it was hilarious and it was a great moment, but I felt like it came really late in the movie and sort of like brightened up the film a little bit while it was starting to stagnate. And yeah, I do no, feel I'll, like this. Yeah, the
2: pacing was yeah, off.
1: I do think that this movie could have done better in, in terms of pacing and keeping the audience engaged. At least, like, maybe not throw in a couple more twists, but like, you know, maybe just solidify their structure a little bit better, so it wasn't just like you, th- you you throw in the hitman. Like I don't know, it was like 18 minutes into the film. It was pretty early. The and, hitman did come in very early. Yeah, so I feel like they could have come in at like maybe the midway point, or maybe a third into the film, and then like as more of a
0: game changer, yeah. if anything, because it really wasn't a game to change so quick. Like they, yeah, it, it, it escalated into a gunfight, and then like five minutes into the gunfight, suddenly there were two more guys Mm -hmm. and people were like, what is
1: happening? Um, Yeah, I think the escalation could have been, like, drawn out better um, in terms of, like, the pacing because otherwise there's just, like, long stretches of just them shooting at each other. And while that was fun, it it does fail to keep the audience compelled compelled for long amounts of time. And I do think there was another part in the film that was sort of a game changer. um, The phone, which I thought was interesting, but it also kind of led to nothing. It was like, (laughs) <laughs> um, it was interesting and kind of like took the characters out of that main area of the factory and they ch- all tried to reach the phone. Um, and there's a part where Brie Larson's character gets chased. Um, but I think that like, I felt like those parts kind of came a little bit too late. So like the hitman came too early and then the phone came too late.
0: And there's a big chunk in the middle where nothing happens.
1: Mm-hmm i don't know when martin when
2: martin wakes up that was hysterical that was pretty funny (laughs) i loved that bit in the middle of the film i also the the van cracked me up at the end of the film when you see harry and steve fighting in the van and it looks so fast and so intense and then the camera (laughs) comes out and the van is like really slowly moving through the (laughs) factory it's so i was laughing so hard that was really funny The physical humor is really good
1: it was. There were some really good moments. Yeah, but I think that like the moments. There's so many good moments in it, but I felt like they could have been aided more by tighter plotting and tighter structure.
2: Yeah,
0: I think the editor and me did not like this movie a lot.
1: That so
2: makes was, sense.
0: In, in in terms of that, and I think that it's really it it pushes on the movie. I'm gonna give it another try when it comes out on digital HD. But I watch it knowing what I'm expecting. And see how I like it.
2: Mm-hmm. All right.
0: I think that's, I, I think. That's I mean, I'm, fair. I'm obviously, I, I'm open-minded to things. You know, I had a friend who thought, um, who liked Get Out, but she didn't think it was the amazing movie that everyone was praising it mm-hmm. because her expectations were too high. And so I told her to give it another shot now that she knows what the movie is, like what the movie is mm-hmm. and what it was going for when it comes out on Home demand on demand. So I'm going to do the same thing with Free Fire. Now that I know what the movie's about, what it's trying to say or not say in terms of anti philosophy, mm-hmm. and give it another shot because I'm an open-minded individual in the year of our Lord 2017, and I'm not some closed-minded hypocrite in 1955.
1: I don't know who you're talking. I feel like that was a subtweet at someone, but I don't no. really know. It was, a sub-
0: sub- it was a subtweet to the Republican Party.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so um, let's read it. up, yeah. Let's tweet it. <laughs> I feel like I think that wraps up our free fire review. What would you guys rate it out of five stars?
0: Solid three.
2: Anya, you know I was leaning towards three and a half before we started recording this episode, mm-hmm. and now I'm up to a four. Because I'm like even so, talked- this movie just keeps getting I've, better like, and better. I'm talking myself into liking this movie even more than I
1: did at the beginning. <laughs> so I I'm think at a four. I'll give all right. I think I'll give it a three and a half. All
0: right, so we got a solid like break. We can t- we can really tell h- how much we like this movie with three, three and a half, and four.
2: And that average brings us to the Millennial Falcon giving Free Fire 5. a three point yep. five. Did you have to do math for that? Even though. You are in the middle, and therefore the average is the
1: middle. I
2: just wanted to make sure
1: it's H- Anya. This is what happens I wanted when to fact when, check. This is what happens <laughs> when humanity students don't know math. Hey, calculators are there for a reason. Okay. Yeah, teachers are always maybe, like well, you know, maybe the you journalists know we didn't have need. calculators, and so the journalist like, just wants to fact check everything because the truth is malleable nowadays.
0: Yeah, fake news.
1: <laughs> math is. Math is a
2: lie, everyone. Math is an alternative <laughs> math is, fact.
0: Math is fake news. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So Money on Falcon gives Free Fire a three and a half stars out of five.
1: So let us move on to the last segment of our episode, I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. I really, 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 really like you. So, Willoughby, why don't you go first this week? What do you really like in pop culture?
0: I wouldn't really so much say pop culture in the broad sense. Um, what I'm really liking is the, uh, infinity mirrors exhibit at the Hirshhorn museum mm. by artist, Yoyoi Kusama. Um, she's been an artist. She's been doing infinity rooms and her art for 50 plus years now. And her, uh, her exhibit, uh, Infinite Kusama is uh, at the Hirshhorn up until May 13th and 14th. Is the final weekend, and for the past three months, every Monday at at noon Eastern Central Time Eastern Eastern Standard Time, um, everyone and their mother has been getting online to the Hirshhorn's website to try and get tickets. These same date these uh, timed passes for the exhibit, and every Monday at noon. Eastern Standard Time, everyone either gets it or they, it's sold out in minutes. Literally, two, one time it was two minutes, and it, all tickets were sold out. It was impressive. Thousands of tickets go by for a week, and my girlfriend and I have been trying to get tickets for months now, and we finally did by just going to the museum, getting there at six forty-five in the morning on a Saturday God. before the metro is even opened. And that means that we got there six forty-five. I left my house at five forty-five, and I drove to eight to American University. I parked because the parking is free on Saturdays, and I got, took an Uber all the way down to the Hirshhorn. My girlfriend took an Uber from her house in Silver Spring, all the way down to the Hirshhorn. We we waited we were able to actually sit in chairs, which is very nice, but we we sat for four hours. oh my pretty god! Much.
1: oh my god more like
0: three and a half well no we 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 sat we sat for three Commitment. and in the last hour we were we were standing because we were they actually guided us into the museum and then um we were able to we actually were able to get tickets for 10.45 in the morning. We thought we weren't able to get uh, a tickets at all and B. If we did get tickets, it wouldn't be until the afternoon, so we'd have to find something to do. Luckily, in this political climate, there's a march going on every weekend. (laughs) Literally, last weekend was the science march, and this weekend was the climate march. Um, And we thought about if we had the time, we'd go out and see what's up with that. But we didn't. We actually got tickets at 10.15 for 10.45. It was great. The art is spectacular. Google Infinite Kusama. Go to the hashtag on Twitter, on Instagram. These gorgeous pictures of this, these infinity rooms where there's different types of her art, uh, of Kusama's art on the floor, hanging from lights, to and experience the hallucinations that and that she experiences, and just there's one where it's these golden lit pumpkins that are really great, and these lanterns which are adorable, and there's one that's just space and stars esque. Mm. It's very, it's very much like you know, looking into the vast emptiness of space and seeing stars. Um, there's one that's like pink beach balls with purple, uh, with black polka dots, and they're really cool. It's just, it's gorgeous and lovely, and it was a very, it, you know, it's, it was worth the months of trying to get tickets and the three hours of waiting uh, for. So I'm glad we were we were able to get to do that, um, and it was a very It was, I mean, it's very much like Disneyland at its busiest Mm -hmm. was just hurry up and wait. You just hurry up to get into line and then you're waiting for for a half hour for an exhibit in which you're actually only in the infinity rooms for 20 seconds at a time. Oh my God. Because A, they have so many people, they have to move them along. And that gives you enough time to take, get your, you have your camera ready and you take your photos because that's what you're going to be looking at for the rest of the time is the photo and not the actual experience. <laughs> but, I mean, we, we soaked it in. You know, we got the most out of it. I got some lovely pictures of my girlfriend. She's, she's great. She's very pretty. Aww. And um, we had a great time. And then we got Five Guys afterwards in the 90-degree heat. We didn't actually eat outside, but we, we had to go from outside the museum to a Five Guys in the 90-degree heat. <laughs> But yeah, inf- the in, uh, uh, Infinity Kusama exhibit at the Hirshhorn Museum is my really really like this week.
2: All right, sounds lovely. So HT and I are actually going to share a really like this week because HT and yeah, I. Yeah, which,
0: which is why I, which is why I went a little bit longer with my story.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, HT and I love the same thing this week. I I think mm-hmm. we can face it. Really like HT and I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it.
1: I have not. So. I... It definitely hey, I, keeps... I, I also saw it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, not just us. It stays on everyone's minds. It's definitely the most prescient and the most relevant show. Well, one of them today, one of, yeah. I think. Yeah.
2: So, HT and I really like Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and uh, the okay. streaming service released the first three episodes on Wednesday. Uh, going forward, it's going to be one episode a week, thank goodness. This is definitely a show that I think is you shouldn't binge.
1: You cannot change
2: um, it. And it's phenomenal. It's beautiful. It's relevant. It's powerful. It's just awe-inspiring. I, I it's fucked it. up.
1: Yeah. It's, so The Handmaid's Tale is based on a novel by Margaret Atwood that was originally published in 1985. And it depicts this dystopian future that's in the not-so-distant future because... The characters in it remember a time before this Republic of Gilead, which is this uh, sort of Christian fundamentalist totalitarian uh, society, um, and the it basically, um, I would it it represses women in the most system systematic way. So these women, the handmaids, are used as surrogates for the barren, um wives and commanders of who are high up in the government and they're basically systematically raped once a month in this really messed up the ceremony. ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. And this is because fertility rates have gone down in this dystopian world so much so that it's incredibly rare for women to conceive at all. So these fertile women are basically enslaved and used as surrogates for these people against their will. And um, they're not the only women who are enslaved in a sense, like they're all subjugated to their own roles in society. And it really makes literal a lot of the ways that we do repress women. Um, so, in the cases of like the wives um, and the handmaids, the marthas who are sort of like the help around the house, the unwomen who are the women who are sent to work the toxic mines that, you know, are all around the U.S. and are where all, like, the pollution and spillage are, and um, the Econowise, which we have not seen yet in the show, but take place in the books. Um, so it's... it's They're, they're subject in different ways, but it's still, like, a very feminist novel that talks about, like, the repression of women and makes it very, feel very, very relevant to today, because it's honestly, like, it's not that much of a jump to the struggles that women are facing um, in terms of, like, ownership and agency over their own bodies and their own rights. Um, Margaret Atwood, I know, drew a lot of influence from a lot of totalitarian regimes at the time, uh, communist regimes or Muslim regimes in um, the Middle East or in the then Soviet Union. Um, And, you know, those sort of regimes have not really changed day we're still seeing a lot of that and it's much more harrowing to see that in like this sort of you know western united states sort of society and uh it is sad like um in the political climate today which is incredibly um polarizing we're still seeing these attempts to repress and oppress women um i went on a little bit of a rant but uh I do want to plug, I wrote an article for Slashfilm sort of recapping the first three episodes of The Handmaid's Tale and pointing out the political parallels that we're seeing to today. And a lot of them are quite um, surprising in terms of like how, how close we are, we could be to this dystopian reality. Anyways, Anya, um, please go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't have much to add. Um, it's
2: mm-hmm. just incredible. It's breathtaking. I do want to give a shout-out to Alexis Splittell though, um, because mm-hmm. I think she's giving one of the best performances she's ever given in her career, and also in the show. Um, she plays the character, Glen. Now, they have added a story to her character that's not in the book, and I think that's mm-hmm. part of why I'm drawn to it so much is that it's very personal for me, um, especially... Mm-hmm. Uh, because they basically, um, her character is explicitly queer in the show, and so it is very personal for me. And so I think just Alexis Bledel is really even my favorite performance right now in the yeah. show, and I really love what she's doing.
1: Um, it's gorgeously shot as well. I think, at least for the first three episodes, they were all directed by women. The same and woman. There's, yeah, the same woman. And um, there's this really great BuzzFeed article talking about the female gaze versus the male gaze. And it kind of talked about how The Handmaid's Tale embodies that female gaze. Interestingly, I can't really go fully into it, but um, I would recommend checking out that BuzzFeed article. But basically talks about how it's almost like a cold, distant um, style that looks oh yeah i can't really describe it very well but i would check out that buzzfeed um article because it really talks about how the handmaid's tale sofia coppola's works are um examples of the female gaze um and how women view the world essentially in like their directing styles yes
2: so if anyone has any thoughts on free fire or the infinity mirrors or the handmaid's tale Definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby?
0: You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millenniumfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud and we're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe to us there. And where can they find you guys?
1: You can find me at H Bui on Twitter. You can find
2: me at Anya crittenton on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter.
2: All right. Thanks
1: for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye.